Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace-King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Matt Matros back to the pod. He's a three-time bracelet winner and now also a three-time poker book author. He just released his new title, The Poker Brain, improving your process through optimal and exploitive thinking, which does a fantastic job of showing how to study effectively, or as Matt puts it, study slowly when away from the table in order to think quickly at the table. And today he brings a really interesting hand with Ace-9 offsuit. Matt, welcome back. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Jen. I love being on the show. And you're going to be the first guest on the grid to click off two hands. So I love this hand. Let's get into it. It was from the World Series of Poker online um, bracelet event last year. Yes, it was a 2021 online bracelet event in the summer. So it was during the pandemic before they had started kicking off the in-person events again. And it was a six max event too. It was a six max and you bring in this hand with ace nine offsuit. Now, at what point in the tournament was this? We were in the money. So it was fairly deep in the tournament. Not just like the bubble just burst either. The bubble had burst. The people who bust right after the bubble had all busted. And now we're in the money trying to sort out who's going to win the real prizes. You know, you mentioned that point after the bubble where um, so many short stacks who survived by the nick of their teeth have eight, 10 big blinds, sometimes even fewer. And um, a lot of them bust, some of them double, triple. uh, And then the average stack is a little deeper. So in this hand, you had about 40 big blinds. Yeah, I have 40 blinds and I'm in the hijack and I open for a little more than the minimum with ace nine offsuit, specifically ace of diamonds, nine of hearts. The big blind is the only caller and we go to the flop. And the big blind is actually someone I know a little bit in real life. Uh, His name is Darren Rabbi is his real name. And he's introduced himself to me when we were deep in a couple of real World Series of Poker events. We played a few hands together and he's always struck me as a pretty knowledgeable player, pretty strong, tough opponent who understands all the latest in poker theory. And so I'm trying to play as close as I can to an optimal strategy against him. Yeah, that's something you talk about a lot in the poker brain about shifting from optimal strategy to being very exploitive, depending on your player type. So you're playing against Avocado Toast, Darren Rabbi, and you open the hijack, he calls in the big blind, everybody else had folded. 
And now the flop is eight, five, deuce, rainbow, and he checks to you. So tell me a little bit about this flop and what went through your head at the time. If you have an overwhelming equity advantage, you can just kind of bet every flop if you were the pre-flop raiser, especially if you have a strong range going in. Uh, I don't really think that's the case here. I have a hijack opening range, which is pretty strong, but it's not like I've opened under the gun at a full table or something. And then I have a flop, this eight, five deuce flop that misses a lot of the big blinds range. Of course, the big blind is often gonna miss a lot of the board, but still the big blind actually has a bunch of eights and fives that at least had part of this board and a bunch of straight draws that they hit. And um, even some of the overcard hands might have trouble. It's not like I have an overwhelming equity advantage. You're not overwhelming enough anyway to bet like 100% of the time. So once you know that you're not betting every hand, then you kind of look at the hand you have at least this is a, sort of my process and say, okay, well, I'm not betting every hand. So do I have a hand that's a good candidate to not bet maybe? And I think I kind of do here because I have showdown value with the ace high. I can, there are a bunch of turn cards that can come off where I can actually continue. It just fits nicely into the hands that I might check back that can maybe deal with the future streets a bit more. And I don't also don't want to get bluff raised out of the hand. So it's pretty reasonable to, to want to check back with this hand. It's also of course, reasonable to bet to deny equity, even if I have the best hand, it's really fine if my opponent folds because they almost always have a lot of equity against me. And they'd be, if they could see my cards, they'd be making a mistake to fold. And so we, we want them to fold in that case. Yeah. And I think that this flop is actually really a really fascinating flop. As you mentioned in the, the book, if you were going to bet, you were going to choose a large size. How large do you think you would choose here? Um, I don't get too fancy with that stuff. I tend to just go maybe like two thirds pot or close to it if I'm going big and, you know, one third pot or close to it if I go small. And I might tweak that a little based on where we are in the tournament. There's times in the tournament where you can bet even less than a third of the pot and it has the same effect. And similarly, sometimes half pot is like a big bet in a tournament. So you don't even have to go two thirds necessarily. But that's sort of my go-to for sizing on the flop. Two thirds is a big bet, one third is small. And I, I will tweak it a little bit depending on how bets are being received at the table maybe, or where we are in the tournament. If, if chips are more at a premium for whatever reason, because of a pay jump or something, you can go even smaller. I think that's a really good point about live play and like the way the bets are received at the table, because there is so much small betting in live tournaments, partly because I guess it's, it's typical to see solver outputs and top players bet very small. So some players will just do that on any flop, even a flop like this, where as you point out in the book, it's probably not optimal. And then the other reason that I think it happens a lot live, Matt, is that I think people forget how much is in the pot sometimes. And it's easy to like underestimate or forget to add like the small blind. And then of course, you're always going to end up going like slightly lower than you should. So sometimes like a three quarters bet can like feel massive, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, in, a, in a live tournament, which doesn't happen online because you just see the numbers right there. Anyway, though, I find this flop to be great because it's actually um, across a lot of different stack sizes and positions. One of the really like top flops for betting really large. Mm. So you really picked like a, such an iconic example here. And when I say top, I'm like the like, top 1%. Oh, wow. It was ranking in like the top five or six hands that you would actually make a huge bet size with. Uh, particularly like earlier position or mid position, you were in the hijack versus big blind defend. So you're saying you, you've kind of studied a list of all those possible flops and you're saying that this one is usually ranks among the highest 
the flops, if you're ranking them by optimal sizing, this would be one of the biggest sizings. Is that what you're saying? Yes. If you look at the spot where you're like opening hijack or early position as well, and you're getting called by the big blind and um, the flop comes out eight, five, deuce rainbow, that is among the very highest flops that you should prefer a big sizing in theory. I mean, it, it does make sense. And for those who haven't haven't yet read my book, and I hope many of you do soon, the main reason for wanting a larger sizing here is the big blind can make a lot of medium strength hands, which are pretty easy for them to call a small bet with, but you want to start putting the pressure on those hands, not just for this street necessarily, but also to barrel. So if they have some random five or some random eight, or even a possibly a deuce, they're not going to fold probably to the flop bet, but it's going to be hard for them to call a bunch of barrels, especially what barrels that start with a big bet. So basically if the big blind makes a lot of like, okay hands, then usually you want to size up and maybe not bet quite as frequently because you can't just bomb every flop or you're, you'll be trapped too easily. But when you choose to bet, you should go for a big sizing here to put pressure on all of those sort of medium strength pants. That's opposed to where if the big blind just kind of either hit top pair or totally whiffed, then you don't have to bet as big because the small bet will take care of all their trash and they'll fold and they don't have a lot of those medium strength pants. My book tries a lot to get into generalized concepts, which the pros will always say, well, what about this example here where, it's, where your rule doesn't apply? Yes, okay, that's true. None of these rules are going to work in every single situation as solvers have shown us, but they're, I, they're good guidelines if you're just trying to be a poker player and think through your options at the table. I also really find it very elegant in your book. You talk about a lot of times where the theory is actually opposite from the exploit. So then you kind of have to pick. And a lot of cases, of course, you pick the exploit if you have a strong read. But then there's also cases where the theory and the exploit really dovetail. And I think this is a really a great example of that. So like the theory says you should like bet big to put pressure on your opponent. In theory, that's probably because you're going to put them in a tough spot with 2x. Remember, the flop is 8-5, deuce rainbow, and also some backdoor flush draws. It's not clear versus a, bet, a big bet whether they should call or fold, whereas versus a small bet, it's kind of obvious that they need to like continue with one. But in practice, it's even more like kind of terrifying to call a huge bet, like 120% pot, which is what a lot of the solvers would want to do in a situation like that. And then on the turn, you know, you get to keep barreling on any card like high, higher than a 10. And uh, it really does put your opponent in such a quandary. In reality, this is one where exploit is actually like just do more theory. It's funny you say that because um, before I really started studying solver stuff a few years ago, I think most of us were in this same situation. We didn't do a lot of these kind of bombing away over bets that the solver recommends. But when we started thinking about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Like if, if you put yourself in your opponent's shoes and you just have your big blind defending range and you're calling a flop with all kinds of medium strength, medium weak hands, you don't want to face some huge bet on the turn. It's a nightmare. And in fact, as another hand in the book shows, there's actually a spot where where, where I was the big blind and I defended and I called the bet in the flop with some medium strength hand. And then the turn, my opponent just bombed all in on me and I folded and the solver said, no, 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 call. You, you still have to call on that card. And we can get the specifics you can look to from the book. But the idea is just that like the optimal play is actually to def defend against some of these bombs with some pretty weak hands. And in real life, most people aren't going to do that. But yes, I think it makes even more sense against humans in, in this case. That aggression is just super instructive. And when I say this is like one of the most iconic flops to choose that bet size with. We're talking about, you know, 1700 plus possible flops that are different strategically and this being in the top five. So oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that is really high up there. And I think it's, 
It's just because like the eight high flop is so interesting because like half of the deck is so good for the in position player and the other half is so good for the out of position player. The cards that are like from the deuce to the eight are actually really good for out of position. But uh, so many cards, the in position player, like an ace, king, queen, or jack, you just get to barrel away on. And I mean, it's impossible for them to play. Yeah. Now I'm wishing I bet this flop. Oh. <laughs> no, not necessarily. I mean, the idea of betting big is that you do it with the appropriate frequency. Yes. And this is another theme in the book, too, which is that you always have to keep frequency in mind. You can understand the theory all you want, but if you're just always betting every flop and you have some reason for it, that's not going to work. You can justify some reason for betting with most hands, but you've got to think about your range overall, betting with the right frequency. And so if you were to bet here, bigger bet is the way to go, as we've been discussing, but you should not be betting. There's a sizable portion of your range that should just check back here. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. Like ace nine definitely fits well into both buckets. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about buckets in your check bucket and your bet bucket. And you point out in the book, actually, that this hand could really go either way. Whereas if you take a hand like ace king or something like that, you might be even more compelled to check. Whereas if you take a hand with lower cards in it, like queen jack, you'd probably be more compelled to bet. So this one's like somewhere in the middle. Yes, I, I think this is a perfect candidate to go either direction. Yes, exactly. Like so that's what you did. You did check. And the turn was one of the cards in that half of the deck that I mentioned is really good for the big blind. It was a seven um, completing the rainbow. So perfect Badoogie on board. You got eight, five, do seven. That's a good Badoogie. Yeah. Yes. And my opponent let out for full pot on the turn. So I, I was playing this hand. I live in New York. And to play these online bracelet events, I have to drive to New Jersey. I'm at a friend's place in New Jersey playing this hand. My friend is just kind of sweating me and it's, you know, midnight or one in the morning or something. And he's had a couple beers at this point. This bet hits where, he, where Darren bets full pot. And I said out loud, good bet, Darren. My friend who's drinking beer says, that is a good bet, man. That's a good bet. And I'm just like, thanks. I appreciate that. It was a weird situation. I recognize that, okay, Darren knows this is a great spot for the big blinds range here. I know he's going to bet big with a good, mix of strong hands and also semi bluffs uh, or even just pure bluffs and so i have to look at my range and not worry so much about what i think darren has and say okay i'm facing a big bet but what does my check back range look like and actually to me at the time i was like well i have a lot of ace highs and this is one of the better ace highs to continue with because i've picked up this gut shot to go with it and so i might rather continue with ace nine let's say than with something like ace jack i kind of compelled myself talked myself into um well, if I fold this hand, I'm folding almost everything I have in my check back range, and that's not good. So that, that can't be right. So I'm thinking about it and thinking, I'm like, all right, it's full pot, but I don't think I have a hand that can really fold. And then I'll worry about the river on the river, which is something, another thing from a solver is that I'm still trying to get into my game because a lot of times I'll review a hand where I've, not in this particular spot, but a spot like this, I might shove rather than call because they don't know what to do when a, if a river card comes like well since i don't know what to do when the river comes i'm just going to semi bluff shove now and at least i have the fold equity to go with it and the solvers actually they do that sometimes of course but solvers are often okay just kind of calling with weakish hands like this even if there's only one pot size better so left going into the river and just figuring out that and not necessarily having a plan used to hear poker players talk about you have to have a plan for the hand. And of course you do. That's something I talk about in the book as well. But sometimes the plan can just be, well, let's see what opponent does in the river. Maybe the plan is just, okay, I'm going to call now. And if they, my opponent bombs again, I'm going to fold. And that's the whole plan. 
And it seems weak in a way if you're an old school kind of poker player who wants to try to win every pot. But if you think about it the way a solver would and just say, well, I have to have some hands that call this better in the turn than fold in the river. So why not this one? And it does, it does make some sense. And I'm trying to get out of the mindset of I have to have a better plan than the hand for this. Cause I, I've definitely gone broken a couple tournaments where I was shoving with equity on turns and spots where the solver was happy to just call and unfold the river if they missed. And I think the psychological issue there becomes that you, you fear that you're getting exploited. And so if you unravel that thought process that if you call, but then you fold to a river, you're assuming that your opponent is just jamming a lot of rivers if you're afraid to fold there. But that, of course, that's probably not the case. And if you really think it's the case, then buckle up and, and go with your read. So I, I feel like a lot of that, like that discomfort that happens in so many turns is a confusion about like unraveling theory and exploit. And that's kind of a good broader kind of very general idea, which is, you know, your opponent has very little information too. Like they don't know more than you do. And so when you call them on the turn, they don't know that you have a weak hand that will probably fold the river. They're going to think twice about barreling again because it looks like you have something. So it goes both ways. I mean, I think it's exactly right. You're afraid of saying, well, if I call here without shoving, it's going to look weak and my opponent will just blow me off the hand of the river. And then why did I even bother calling? It's like, well, not necessarily. If you call on the turn, a lot of times you still have a ton of pretty strong hands in your range. And so just because you happen to have a weak one this time doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be calling. And so you had the um, ace high as well as picking up that gutter with the uh, eight, five, deuce, seven. So a six will make you straight. And um, there are no flush draws. So the river comes a two and Darren elects to check. Yes. And so Darren checks, again, I have a question of what to do. Obviously, check is in some ways good news for me because it makes it pretty unlikely that he actually turned a big hand because it makes all the sense in the world for him to continue there and try to get more value. Because if he has a big hand, he can't really expect, it doesn't look like a spot where the in-position player is now going to spring to life and bet too often on the river. It's not impossible, of course. He definitely could still have a big hand, but the, the overall, if you're playing the percentages, it's much less likely now that he's checked that he has a big hand. But does he still have a hand that's better than mine? And if so, is there some chance, is there some value in me turning this ace high into a bluff? And that's sort of what I was going through at the table. And at the time, my thinking in-game was probably a little more simplistic than it was in the book. My, my thinking in-game was more to the point of, well, Darren's a smart player. It doesn't really look like I could have much of a hand here. I mean, what did I check back the flop with on this board? It certainly wasn't an overpair. And so what could I really be value betting if I bet on the end? There's not much I can represent. This is what we would, the old school way of saying it would be, I'm, I wouldn't be repping much if I were betting this river. And so it seemed like a spot where it'd be pretty easy for Darren to sniff out a bluff. That was my in-game reason for checking back. When I thought about it more later, I found other, I mean, other reasons to justify it basically in the book, which is that if you look at blockers, which is something we talk about you know, all the time you hear about it in poker analysis these days, well, how do the blockers affect the decisions? And so by me having a nine in my hand here, some of the some of the hands Darren might have bet the turn with that maybe he'll consider folding to a bluff. Now, could be hands that turned like a pair and a gutter. So like nine, seven, nine, eight, he probably not gonna fold nine, eight, but nine, seven, nine, eight, maybe nine, five. Uh, and I block those hands. So if I block the hands that I want him to fold, that's not good for potential bluff candidates. 
I was not thinking at that level in game at the time. My thinking at the time was more, I really can't represent much here, so I cannot have a big bluff range, so I'm not going to put this hand in. And I think that's a valid in-game analysis too, but the more we do the post-game analysis and think about some of the deeper ideas, the more those will actually come into play at the table. And I'll say now, a, you know, a year plus later after playing this hand, I do think more about some of those blocker ideas in game than I was even then. So, I mean, I, I was sort of learning myself as I was writing this book, honestly, training my own poker brain. Oh, definitely. And that really comes through. I mean, the idea of like actually trying to explain things to an audience that's going to be mixed levels means that you have to break it down. And of course, that's going to teach you a lot, as opposed to just like looking at the solver output, you have to translate into English. And you um, are a writer, you've written novels, you have an MFA. So of course, I think that that has got to deepen your understanding 100%. Now, you talk a lot about blockers just there. I mean, the other concept about checking back is showdown value as you, you had the ace high and you ended up winning the hand against Jack-10 offsuit, which elected not to bluff, which kind of really, as Darren, the professional player, it kind of goes back to what we said before, that there's a fear of calling the turn, thinking that your opponent will literally bluff every river. Well, of course, that's not the case. And he didn't bluff this particular river. You point out in the poker brain that the solver thinks he should have chosen Jack-10 offsuit as a bluff. It's tough to pull the trigger, and Lord knows I've missed a lot of potential good spots to bluff. So I, I understand why Darren did shut it down here. But if, if you look at it from his perspective, which I wasn't doing at the time, of course, I was too busy worrying about how to play my own hand. But thinking about how to play his hand now after the fact, what I was thinking was, well, okay, what are some of the hands um, he's trying to get me to fold. And I think my hand is a perfect example, ace nine. And similarly, ace six could have checked back the flop and then turned an open ender and certainly is not going to, I mean, I shouldn't say certainly, but could definitely be in the range that calls the pot size bet on the turn. And so with Jack 10, he unblocks all of those hands. Of course he has no showdown value. So the hand that unblocks all the hands that I might want to fold versus other potential bluff candidates where he could have like some random six in his hand to want to bluff with it. You know, just just having turned an open ender and knowing that his range, it's a good board for his range, he could just start bombing away with a lot of his sixes. Those are, I think, our worst bluff candidates because they block me having a six or something. So he has sort of an ideal hand, given, given the whole scope of his range, potential hands to bluff from. A lot of his potential bluffs are not great candidates because of the blocker situation, whereas Jack-10 unblocks everything that he wants me to fold. Um, so it does seem like an ideal hand to put in the bluff bucket on the river. But yeah, it's tough when your opponent calls the pot size bet in the turn to pull the trigger necessarily. But I do think he he probably regrets this one. I'm, not, I'm sure he regretted when he saw what I had, but he might have regretted it even you know in the abstract because it does seem like this should be maybe one of the first hands you pick to bluff with. And of course, you have to bluff with something if you're ever going to value bet here, which he definitely is. So I think... Um, Maybe a missed trick by Darren, but we've all been there and we've all done. You did win the hand. And how did the rest of the tournament go for you? As uh, described in the book, uh, I got to 24 players left. There were four tables left. It was a six max tournament. And I was a biggish stack and I opened on the button and the big blind shoved on me. And I called with ace queen, which offsuit, which I, which I defend in the book as I believe to be the correct play. People, people tend to go a little overboard with... ICM kind of adjustments, but with 24 players left, if you open the button and the big blind shoves on you, I don't think there's any pay structure in the world where you can fold ace queen, I would argue. 
That's just way too strong a hand for my button opening range. And I lost to two nines and that left me with like a blind or something. And then I was out the next hand. So that, that was, you know, it was a good run. It was a pretty big, the pretty large field. And so to get to the final four tables was a nice feeling. And of course, if I had won that flip, it would have been on, but that's okay. This is, this is how these things go. Yeah. I've been, I've enjoyed playing those WSOP.com online tournaments for the most part. I mean, they've had some bumps along the way, I would say, but um, at this point, I think they're, they run relatively smoothly at this point, And I do enjoy playing them. I see. So you spend a lot of time going to New Jersey. I spend a fair amount. I mean, you can't spend too much time doing it, but yeah, I've, I've driven back and forth my fair share to, to play some of these things. Yeah. And you also spend some time coaching. So you've written not just the poker brain, but also game plan, which we talked about in their previous grid episode, where you talked about it hand against Brian Hastings. Great episode. So if you haven't listened to that, you can hear more about the game plan, but you've written the game plan and now the poker brain. And talk to me a little bit about how your work with students has kind of informed your, your work, because I think one leak that a lot of people have is that they assume that everybody thinks like them. Definitely interacting with other players as a formal coach, which I have some students, and also just as a peer, there's there's hands in the in my book. Most of them are my own hands, but there are some from students, there are some from friends of mine, and discussing hands with other players has always been the the main my main method of improvement and helping my own thought process and thinking through different perspectives because you do get locked into a certain idea, and the best way to get exposure to different ideas is to hear someone else and they make a play and like, wait a minute why did you do that? And I never would have occurred to me to play that way. And then you start thinking differently. And sometimes you, maybe even more than sometimes you end up playing, not changing your own style, but every once in a while you do. And that's how improvement happens. The frequency thing that we discussed earlier, it tends to happen a lot with students where I, I will catch them and I, I will say like, okay, how would, what would you do here? Would you three bed or call? And they will say, well, Either one is reasonable. And I'll say, I agree. So what did you do? And they will say, call every single time. Or they'll mm. say three, or they'll say three bet every single time. And I'll say, okay, well, mm-hmm. it is reasonable to call there, but it's not reasonable to call every single time you're in a similar situation because now you're not just not playing aggressively enough. Or conversely, if you're always three betting there, you're just you're just a maniac and you're playing too aggressively. So one thing students will tend to do is look at every hand in a vacuum and say, okay, this is reasonable. So I'm gonna do this instead of looking at their overall strategy. And I think. People underestimate how important that is because it actually doesn't take as long as most people think it does for opponents to get a line on how you're playing and what your what your style is at the table. And so if you you know have flatted in similar spots like just just even a few times, people are going to your opponents are going to say, Oh, this is not a very aggressive player. And it turns out they're going to be right. And you kind of want to have a strategy that is not as easy to latch onto as that. And it's also just a stronger way to play. So that's one thing is a students will often don't realize that they're playing a certain style because they think they're just doing an acceptable play every time, but they're not considering the frequency. And then of course, one of the main leaks that almost every tournament player has is that they are too concerned with busting and and um, trying to survive and not concerned enough with trying to improve their chip stack. And I'll always do the same caveat I always do. There are of course exceptions to this when survival should be paramount, but there's a lot of times when people will start talking about ICM and pay jumps and stuff, like for example, with 24 players left where I'll say there's just not, that's just not much of a consideration here. You're so far from any real pay jump that you should be trying to win at this point. Worry about the pay jumps when you're at the pay jump. Don't worry about it, you know, three tables away. And so that's something I always have to hammer in to students, but then, you know, they'll show me other ways to play too, where they find 
different spots to maybe bluff, uh, hands that I wouldn't consider turning into a bluff, they end up bluffing or, yeah, there's there's lots of lots of things. If, if, you, if you discuss hands, you will find little wrinkles in your game. Interesting. So actually the old school discussion of hands, you know, I feel like people do less of that these days. I agree, yeah. <laughs> I think it's because maybe people actually study poker more, so they're more tired and they just wanna talk about other stuff when they're on breaks and dinners of tournaments. And I also think people have kind of like, gotten into their own chat groups where there's strategy discussions and they kind of have like segmented that part of their life so they don't really need to like pursue it casually in the same way that maybe it used to be like fun. It's maybe just a bit of a professionalization of like poker and its study. I just used to hear people just talking about hands all the time and breaks and I feel like it's disappeared a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I haven't I haven't been around the live scene since the pandemic. So I don't have the most current experience to, to draw from, but just kind of thinking about the conversation on Twitter and poker discussions in general, it certainly seems like hand discussion is not nearly as popular as it used to be. Now poker Twitter is all about drama and like who's doing what and you know, don't we have to get into that, but it's very little about, hey, would you three bet here or would you, how would you play this river? Ryan LaPlante is an exception. He His Twitter account is a lot of just, okay, so there was 37 blind stacks and this player had squeezed and then I did so. And that, and I love that stuff. I, I think that's great. But yeah, mostly if you want to discuss hands, you have to find some coaching site or you have to have your chat group or you have to have some other means to do it because yeah, it seems like on breaks, people want to have their sushi and relax, which is fine. I mean, you need to have breaks too, but discussing hands is to me still the best way to incorporate it. I mean, in, in conjunction, of course, with solvers and reading and studying and all that other stuff. Yeah, well, I do think that translating the math of poker into words is really important. I mean, we're both writers, so maybe it's even more important for us. But <laughs> in general, I think it's important for everyone because it's very, very hard to remember things if you don't tell yourself a story about them, right? And um, well, talking in language is basically storytelling. So that's for me, like just looking at like a, a grid and as the title of this podcast, just looking at these solutions and looking at grids, uh, it's very difficult to retain information if you don't translate it to a story or to heuristics. Absolutely. My eyes glaze over a lot of times when I look at that grid. In my book, I, my books, I've sort of resisted putting those grids in. When I give recommendations for ranges, I usually just list all of the hands, which I'm sure some people don't like, but some people probably do like it because it, to me, it's a little easier to tell a story, even if it's not words, even if it's just like, okay, Here's the, do it with the suited aces, these offsuit aces, these offsuit kings. And that's just a different way to group it in your mind than like memorize this image of this grid that I'm showing you. And I'm sure that that the grid image works great for some people and that's, that's fine, but you can get those grids. You can see the grid a lot of places. And so I, I think Ed Miller with his books was similar. He would prefer to just kind of list the hands you would play. Uh, and yeah, I'm a huge believer. And then the whole book is based on the idea of that you need to turn some of the teachings from the solvers into concepts. You need to have something you can actually use because if you just stare at solver stuff all day long, but don't really know what's going on, that's almost useless. It's maybe not entirely useless. Maybe there are some people who can learn that way where they can just stare at enough solver solutions. And then eventually they think they're mimicking the play because they've memorized so much stuff, but that's not me. And that's not you. Yeah. It could be because we're writers, but I, I sort of think it's partially because it's just hard to learn anything that way. And so, if you have some grasp of why you might want to play a hand a certain way, that's just to me just hugely helpful. And it helps you tweak 
in situations where things are slightly different. And it also helps you to have the confidence to either veer away from something. It's like, well, the solver tells me to do this, so I'm going to do this. Like, okay, but if you know that the reason the solver is telling you to shove with king eight suited here, let's say, is because you want to find the best suited king that unblocks the raised fold hands from the opener's range. If you know that that's the reason, maybe you don't want to do it against the loosest opener in the world, because now all of a sudden the, the logic of shoving that hand doesn't apply anymore. And so you, you can kind of have the confidence to move away from certain solver recommended plays if you know why the solver is doing it. this ace nine hand. If you know that um, the reason the solver would consider calling on the turn uh, with my hand is because you're playing a really tough opponent who could have all of these semi bluffs in their range. Well, if I hadn't been playing a professional, if I had been playing an amateur player who bet pot on the turn, I probably would have folded pretty quickly because most amateurs are not full pot bluffing nearly often enough on that, on a turn card like that. And I would have been confident saying, okay, well, optimally this might be a call and I'm possibly folding my most of, or all of my range here, but I'm okay with that against this opponent. Cause I really don't think they're taking advantage. I think they just have turned a vulnerable made hand and want to make a big bet and get me out. And that's fine. I'm going to let them succeed. And so without the understanding of why you're going to miss a lot of opportunities, I think to, to find good spots. And I totally agree with you on confidence. I think confidence is so key to live poker success in particular online as well. And it's sometimes like just so important to have confidence that even if some of your explanations aren't correct, it's better to have a sense that your strategy is is strong because you're able to then like really focus on what's going on at the table. And I think to some extent, solvers could create confidence crisis issues for people. Because a lot of poker players just used to be super confident. And I feel now like they, they play and they, if you know that you're obviously not able to mimic perfect play, um, unless you really do study with these uh, solvers all day long, you might feel like self-conscious or nervous. And I think it's really important not to do that. And, and the reason I say that there is a confidence crisis is I see the anxiety that people have about the ranges. And, you know, like if they make a a three bed or a flat, uh, you'll see people like looking at their charts at the table to see whether it was correct to do so. And to me, that shows a lot of anxiety because obviously curiosity maybe, but like if you're literally doing it at the table, like while other people like can see you doing it, it just, it seems to me like kind of odd and I have to stop myself from doing it myself. I, I don't usually succumb to temptation, I'm more like curious about like, was this a theoretical three bet here? Um, but I feel like it's ridiculous to actually do that at the table because people might see me. I think that's a really good point. I mean, back in the day, some of us were very confident poker players. I mean, I think actually humility is a really great skill for a poker player to have as well. But confidence, too, in that you are making decisions based on sound reasoning. And yeah, I think I might have been more confident about what I was doing in 2004 than I am now, now that I know how, how many mistakes we're making all the time. And so it's definitely something worth interrogating. And I think having that mixture of confidence and humility is the perfect recipe for a strong poker player. But I, I, I agree with you that people get a little too obsessed with, okay, well, was this hand supposed to be in this range or not? I agree that at the table, if I've chosen the three bet with the queen nine suited, I don't necessarily at the end of the very end of the hand say, okay, was that part of supposed to be part of three bit range or is that the wrong stack size for, or is this the wrong spot or position? Or, you know, I've chosen it for this hand. I'm going to play it. I'll look at it later and, you know, try to make my range 
correspond more closely if it was off by a lot. But I think you can actually gain confidence too if you keep analyzing your play and sort of looking at the spots where you went a little further astray from what the solver does. But the more you do it, the closer you're going to get. And just kind of knowing that you have some idea of like approaching the right play. And if you find some plays, like since I've studied solvers, I found a lot more plays that I wouldn't have made several years ago. So I I think it, it can actually increase your confidence in ways as well, but it also kind of gives us the proper humility. I'm like, okay, you're going to have confidence because you're playing a lot better and making more interesting plays than you used to. And that feels great. But you also know that, okay, but I actually don't know any. It turns out I don't know anything about how to play poker. Like the machines know how to play poker. We don't really know. We're just guessing kind of a lot of the time. And so keeping both those ideas in mind, I, I think is very important for success. Definitely a very difficult game. Now, on a lighter note, you talk in the book about exploitive play and you wrote that there's a misconception among some analytically minded players that you need a very large sample size against an opponent to determine if they are a fish, AKA fun player. In reality, it's often possible to spot one immediately. And now you give a bunch of examples. And I think this is great. You weren't at the World Series of Poker this year. (laughs) So there are so many exceptions to this. So one, one of your examples is a player sits down at the table wearing a World Series of Poker sweatshirt. Sure. <laughs> well, there is an 80% sale at the WSLP ah. store, and there are some pros wearing those sweat hoodies and sweatshirts. I saw Farrah Galfon with one. I mean, there are a lot of players rocking the gear. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that recommendation was not going to apply to 2022. Uh, it definitely used to be the case that the tourists would all buy the WSOP sweatshirt. But I do also point out in the book that that's your be your first impression, but change it immediately if you have other um, info. And, you know, hopefully when Farrah Galfon plays a few hands, you will realize she's not a fish. There are going to be exceptions to every one of those rules, or not even rules, guidelines for identifying fish. But the idea, and this is something I think that when analytical people say, you need a huge sample size to determine if someone's fish. Well, you need a huge sample size to determine with like 95% confidence or something that someone's a fish. But you can tell with like 55% confidence very quickly. And that's hugely important because if you have an opponent who is a favorite to be a fish, you should immediately treat them differently than you would if they were just like the average entry in a tournament who's probably like at least a solid recreational amateur or even semi-professional player. So someone who's probably a fish, you can immediately start trying to exploit. And yeah, once in a while, that's going to blow up in your face. Overall, that's going to end up being to your benefit. And of course, it, it also it doesn't take that much longer to have to have, have your opinion go in one direction or another. So yeah, as soon as they sit down, you can kind of start making a mental model of how your opponents are playing, but you should be able to revise that pretty quickly based on how they're actually playing. You can see just one hand from someone and know that, okay, they're probably not a fish if they've taken some creative line or if they've folded their first four hands and then open the next one like fish but conversely if, if uh, someone's open limping their first three hands like okay they're, they're a fish right away you don't need you don't need too much more information now you're you already are like 95 percent confident they're a fish I, I think it's important for poker players to think about even their reads as sort of on a spectrum so you don't have to know exactly how someone plays to be able to play well against them you can just kind of play the odds and say, okay, this person's probably a fish. I'm going to treat them this way and then go from there. Yeah. Especially since so much of poker is mixed, obviously you can just switch up your mix a little bit, but there are some other funny examples, like using a card protector, complaining about how lucky they've been reading a poker book. Okay. So (laughs) 
Unless it's the poker brain, right? I don't think too many people are going to read the poker brain at the poker table. Uh, my favorite one of those, I think I, I think I left it in the book, was referring to Ace King as Big Slick. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah got to bring that back. Well, I don't want to embarrass him. So if he's listening to this, I you know, mean this in all the love. But I had a student who continually referred to Ace King as Big Slick. And I struggled with whether to say something because it's not actually you know, strategically relevant that he doesn't call <laughs> Ace King Big Slick. But I wanted to say something like, you know, part of learning poker is speaking the language of poker so that people understand. And if you if you refer to Ace King as Big Slick, people are not going to take you seriously when you're talking about it. <laughs> but I didn't ever say that. I just let it go and I let it go. And the correction will have to come naturally. If, and as it's kind of like with kids. I know you're a parent. I'm a parent. And I have this philosophy. And I, I think you have a similar one, which is that you let you kind of let kids make mistakes with language, like say the wrong thing as long as they want to, because they'll eventually figure it out on their own. And that's going to that's going to stick a lot better than a parent saying, no, it's not it's not this word. It's this word. You don't want kids to feel like they can't experiment with language. And this is not quite the same thing, but I do want to let my students sort of talk about their hands in their own way without me correcting their lingo or whatever too much. And eventually they'll come around to the right lingo, hopefully. <laughs> Well, I think it's complicated. Big Slick is not Ace King suited, right? It's just offsuit. Is that right? I think I think I, I thought Big right. Slick was just Ace King, but who really knows, Jan? I mean, it's, it could be anything <laughs> at this point. But maybe that's something to bring back, you know? <laughs> we should bring back names for all the hands. Yes. I'm doing that, actually. I am. You are. I know it sounds crazy. I probably won't use Big Slick because it doesn't really have a good image. Sure. So here's what I'm trying to do. And this is very big, big bonus strategy content here, guys. Um, so I'm going back to coming up with nicknames for all the hands. Oh, nice. The reason is, and they're going to be like idiosyncratic, like really stupid stuff. It's kind of like, um, ace nine off would be like a knockoff okay? because it kind of sounds like ace nine off. And then also like, it's so much worse than like the other Broadway aces. Um, so it's like a knockoff bag, right? Ah, I like it. Yeah. All kinds of random hands you used to have nicknames. I mean, if I say West Virginia aces, do you know what that is? <laughs> Oh, A6? 9-7 used to be West Virginia Aces because Jimmy Boyd from West Virginia loved that hand and he seemed to win with it all the time. So it became called West Virginia Aces. Ah. And then there was, do you know what 8-5 used to be called? I don't know why the, what, the, what the etymology is for this. 8-5 used to be called gumbo. And like, I have no idea why, but it was just called gumbo or suited gumbo if it was suited. Here's why I'm doing it though. Because it's actually for strategic reasons. And this is, this is why they have to be visual. It's actually to memorize preflop charts. Okay. Because I, I think that it'll be a little, it's a little easier when you're able to have images. Specifically, hands like A sign off is a really good one to have memorized. It, sometimes the preflop strategies are a little hard. They're not like super intuitive. Like with Big Slick, for instance, it's like kind of obvious what you do in most spots. <laughs> and it's kind of obvious what you do with like seven deuce offsuit. But a lot of those like trouble hands, as they used to call them, you, you know, if you want to have the proper frequencies, it's very, very difficult to remember it all. And so one monomic device is to actually have like a visual that kind of pops out at you. A little sad to hear that you have a very good strategic sound <laughs> reason for nicknaming these hands. But yes, that makes that makes all the sense in the world. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I think some of the most surprising preflop solutions from some of the solvers that spit out is a lot of the play with, with these mediocre offsuit aces. I mean, from like, the times they open shove or three bet shove with like relatively big stacks from the times they like are selected as hands to three bet from the big blind or even from the button against an early raise. Knowing when that's like a sound play and when that's crazy is I, can, I think pretty important. And it, it was surprising how often those sort of hands that we all consider pretty rightly so as 
not great hands, they have their time and place in terms of, as part of a broader preflop strategy. And yeah, it's um, it can be tough to wrap your head around when it's safe to do that and when it's when it makes much less sense. And so I think you're right that anything you can do to kind of remember which situation is which with those hands can be very helpful. A lot of the strategies we're discussing, it's like, well, if you're only supposed to three bet with Jack nine suited, but you throw in Jack eight suited, yeah, okay, that's probably a little negative EV in an optimal land, but it's pretty close to reasonable. Whereas with the offsuit aces, sometimes it's going to be like, oh, you should shove them all. Sometimes it's like, oh, you should fold all of them except for ace queen. It's like, okay, well, geez, that's a huge difference. And so you have to kind of really look at the different solutions and different outputs from the solver and you know get a get a feel for what's what. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes a knockoff bag is really, really strong. It looks beautiful. And sometimes you just got to trash it, right? Yes. So the thing is, I'm not trying to make a language for everyone. It's for me. It's idiosyncratic. And uh, I think that's actually yeah. a beautiful thing about poker. The more you come up with your own ideas, the better you'll get, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. You have to have your own personal twist on things because it shows, it kind of proves to yourself that you're thinking about it with your own brain, your own poker brain. That you're not just like trying to emulate strategies, which I think unless you have a really, really good memory and you have a lot of iterations will always kind of be difficult. Obviously, a lot of players are not able to play poker 100% full time. So we need to come up with efficient strategies to learn and make things our own. Yeah, totally. I'm curious if, if, that, if you found something similar in chess, because I'm you know, only a recreational chess player, never not nearly as good or as serious as you are. But in my studying of chess, it seems like concepts only get you so far. You have to kind of really log a lot of hours just training your brain to sort of do calculations and solve tactics and stuff that are beyond words. They're just kind of like your brain interacting with the pieces. Do you think that's true, first of all? And do you think chess just requires a different kind of study than poker I think does? There's some similarities like in the structure of it, like trying to structure your opening repertoire might be similar and like trying to structure your opening ranges and, you know, make sure that you've got the biggest holes plugged. Like, what to do versus Sicilian. And, you know, you can kind of neglect some things that are more exotic, like what to do against the uh, B6 on the first move. Hey, you'll just build a center and everything will be okay, right? Sure, that's what I do, that's what I do every time. That kind of like study plan is similar, but what you're saying about being able to visualize the pieces in the board and kind of try to remove language from the equation a little bit and think in piece movements is really important. But then when it comes to like building an opening repertoire, I actually would say there's some similarities that it's really good if you have your own opinions, because otherwise the, the tendency to just copy other people without really understanding why they're playing the moves is so easy to do, to just like copy the Stockfish, copy Magnus Carlsen. And then when there's a deviation, you don't know what to do. Doesn't that sound a lot like poker, where if you study these ranges, but if you don't fully understand them and make them your own in some way, um, when your opponent reacts differently, you're not able to deviate quickly enough. Yeah, so I wonder, listening to you talk about that, my problem, I think, would be I'm not good enough at chess to have my own opinions, I feel like. I can only really trust what other people are saying. And I, I wonder if there are play poker players out there that sort of feel similar, like, well, how can I trust my own poker brain. I mean, I'm going to just read what other people are telling me to open with and three bet with and just try to do that because they know more than I do. With some things you do just want to memorize. And I think that's true in chess as well. But at some point when you, when you study enough, hopefully you get to the point where you do have your own opinions. And for me, that came easier in poker than it had in, in chess. But maybe it's just a matter of like engaging with more study, engaging your brain enough until you say, okay, wait a minute. 
this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. So I'm going to do something else. I think that's totally valid in both games. If you're doing something, you have to be playing a strategy that makes sense to you. And that can start with kind of a simple strategy, which my book, The Game Plan, is pretty much about. It's like how to how to build just sort of a very straightforward strategy that anyone can follow that's, that does follow some of the basic principles, but is not going to be as nuanced as you need to get if you want to be a professional. And then once you have that baseline, build up from there. For me personally, I found it more difficult to build up that baseline in chess than I did in poker, but maybe it's just the reps. I mean, I, I was bad at poker for years before I was good. And maybe the same just has to be true of any game, really. I would like to clarify that it doesn't mean that you need to come up with a novelty that would startle Magnus Carlsen. Right. What I mean more is like that you have a strategy that uh, is idiosyncratic. Like I really feel that even though both of these options are considered zero, 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 this one's so much easier to play and it's going to elicit more mistakes and I'm going to be more confident in it. And that sounds a lot like poker too. Like think about an example, which I think you bring up in the book that you um, are supposed to choose like a mix between like three betting and flatting, let's say with like king queen off from the cutoff versus an open. And like, you're like, you know what? In this tournament, I'm going to do more three betting because I think that A, I'm going to play better in the heads up pot. It's going to be harder for people to meet the minimum defense frequency than if I flatted and the big blind got in there. And so that's something that I'm just going to do more of until maybe they catch on and I have to scale it back. There's a bunch of reasons to sort of change up slightly from the optimal strategy. I, I think one is if the optimal strategy is like, well, okay, you want to flat some small percentage or three bets some small percentage and then do this the rest of the time. The smaller that percentage is, the more you can just kind of approximate by saying, okay, I'm always going to do the more common play here and it's not going to cost me hardly anything in EV. So it just makes your own life easier if you're not trying to like maintain two different ranges in your head for any given position. And yeah, the other one is yes, to kind of look at who your opponents are, look at what the table is and say, okay, well, do I want to induce a squeeze here with a lot of my good hands? And so should I be flatting more or would I rather, do I know people are not going to play as well against three bets? Or do I want to have a more three bet heavy strategy? And that's totally valid, a totally valid approach. And with chess, one of the things that they, they teach beginners like me is that it's really not that important that you find the very best move in any given position. It's much more important that you avoid making terrible mistakes like blunders or even just like obviously inferior moves. You want to try to find a good enough move as often as you can. Oh yeah, that's so true with chess that avoiding blunders is so key. However, I think it's actually a really dangerous concept to translate into poker. I actually changed my mind on this because I used to think that it was a great concept for poker, that people should be more focused on like not making big mistakes, like not leaving a huge riverbed on the table and all that, yep. and that they should focus less on uh, little mistakes. But now I've kind of changed my mind a little bit because I think it can lead to very passive play if you try to avoid big mistakes. A lot of times there's mixed strategies. And if you're always choosing the passive option, you're less likely to make a mistake, but then your overall strategy will be terrible. So that kind of ties into what you were saying earlier. If you're thinking about putting in a huge amount of chips, you don't want to make any major mistakes there because it can really cost you. But when you're making like the C-bet decision or decisions for just like whether to defend your blind or just a few chips here and there, you want to try to be as precise as possible because there's there's no real big mistake you can make at that point. And so you definitely don't want to always fold. So yeah, people are going to misinterpret the advice to be like, avoid mistakes. And that's what a lot of people do especially in something like the main event, they just don't want to bust early on. And so they play super conservatively and there's no real reason 
to do that when you're super deep and this decision is for like two or three blinds here and there. Like you don't have to play super conservatively to not bust. You can just play the best game you can. And then when your opponent bombs a huge riverbed on you, then you could think about it. And I actually had a hand where I, where I think I did make a big mistake where I don't want to get into all the details. We don't have time, but basically we were hugely deep stacked early in a big tournament online. And on the river, the board was ace, ace, queen, five, three with three hearts. And I had pocket fives which seems like a pretty good hand, it's fives full, but my opponent piled in, you know, 180 blinds over bet into the river. And I ended up calling, but I'm almost sure that that was wrong now because people just simply don't pile those massive over bets in without full houses there. And I don't beat, I only beat one full house. I beat the flushes and I beat threes full, but those are not very likely hands. And so getting it in with a full house is almost never a huge mistake, but here it was. And that's the kind of thing you want to avoid is like, the more chips that are going in, the more you should be more precise about what you should be, about how cautious you should be. So, you know, sure, make a mistake for three blinds as much as you want. That's not going to hurt you. You want to try to gain experience. You want to try to play the best you can. But don't call off for 180 blinds like I did when you really can't beat anything. You really, we really are not going to win often enough to justify it against humans, especially. That's a great example. So don't lose your chess queen. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yes. Don't lose your queen. I think in both games, it is important to avoid big mistakes, but there's lots of other things that should come into play as well. Yeah, don't let it make you play passively. That's the key part for poker. And thank you so much for talking about this hand. I mean, ace nine off, AKA a knockoff. The knockoff, yeah. <laughs> it was a great hand and eight five deuce. What an amazing flop. Maybe I have to do all the flops next, but that's the uh, the big bet oh energy God. flop. The, the, the grid for 1,700 flops? That would be pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> but so definitely, and now I have a nickname for that flop, a big bet energy, 8-5 juice rainbow. <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here first. Um, thank you so much, Matt Matros. He is the author of The Poker Brain. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle, or a hard copy. Is there anything else we should know about how to get The Poker Brain? Um, of course, the game plan is also available. Yep, Poker Brain and Game Plan are there in Amazon. I'm also available for coaching. You can find me on Twitter at Matt underscore Matros. And hopefully I'll have some new coaching stuff for everybody soon. But for now, just buy the book and I'll get back to you soon. And you're going to want to check it out. Thanks again, Matt Matros. It's always a pleasure. So good to see you, Jen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.